Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Your daily encouragement that God has the world in the hollow of his hand. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. On this Friday morning, the 24th of September, I want to lead off with um, what's an anomalous health incident. Not just one anomalous health incident, but a collection of anomalous health incidents. Basically, that means weird things are happening to people and nobody has an answer for it. So collectively, what's going on is known as Havana Syndrome. And the headline this morning is that uh, Havana syndrome has now cost the CIA station chief in Vienna his post. Also, the State Department's top official overseeing Havana syndrome uh, has left her position after only six months. What in the world is going on? There is an increasing number of these cases. They have now been reported uh, in every continent except Antarctica, targeting U.S. government officials, primarily those um, in intelligence services and now their families. So Havana syndrome um, is this phenomenon uh, named after the Cuban capital where U.S. diplomats and intelligence officers first reported these unusual anomalous health incidents, varied symptoms from headaches and vision problems to dizziness to brain injuries to literally collapsing with um, rapid onset vertigo, I mean, in the middle of just walking from one place to another, waking up in the middle of the night in a hotel bedroom um, with the with the room spinning out of control. Like we're, we're talking about real things happening to real people in places all over the world. And so is it an attack by a foreign nation? If so, who? If so, how? Um, many believe it is an attack by a foreign nation on U.S. uh, intelligence personnel. If that is what it is, then it has escalated in Vienna, and nobody has been talking about it over the months that this has been taking place in what is one of the most significant uh, intelligence posts in the world. So we're talking about Austria. We're now learning that um, several functions, several embassy functions have been shut down last month. I mean, it's been going on for a while. just not reported, uh, following these anomalous health incidents, including not only U.S. intelligence personnel, CIA operatives, but also uh, families of embassy personnel and their children. So there's no clear pattern to the health events, uh, roughly 200 of which have been reported around the world in the past five years. Um, And so this week, the House of Representatives unanimously passed, let me note that, unanimously passed, we don't get to say that very often today, the U.S. House of Representatives unanimously passed legislation that would provide funding for the treatment and aid to individuals who have been affected by Havana syndrome, even though Havana syndrome is, right, what? Not a thing. It's a thing. It's happening, but nobody knows what thing it is or how it's happening. Uh, There are a number of people um, at 
Walter Reed National Military Medical Center um, who have been diagnosed with brain injuries and are receiving specialized medical treatment. Um, Those would be the most severe cases of Havana syndrome that we know about right now. So here's part of the challenge. There are some people who think it is uh, not physical, but somehow psychological. Uh, The FBI apparently has a study that determined that the illnesses had some sort of psychological origin and not a physical one, which, as you can imagine, people suffering from real physical effects um, are not happy about. And that is part of the reason that the person overseeing this for the State Department has left her post, because apparently on a call with um, with people suffering, um, she was not willing to say that. It's it's physical and not simply psychological. And so there you go. That's uh, that's what I know about this. So what then do we say about such things? Um, let's start with this. There is a lot we don't know about a lot of things that are going on in the world today. So we have to live in the confidence and the knowledge that God knows. So I am praying that God would expose the truth that God would heal those affected, that God would protect those who may even now be targeted. I'm praying for a hedge of protection over them and their families uh, as they are surely living with a great deal of anxiety and chronic fear from a, you know unidentified, invisible enemy. I also want to note that real people are really suffering and finding the cause of whatever whatever form of evil is being done against them is imperative. And so I'm praying today for those who are working to discover the truth. The truth, um, as we acknowledge in the words of Jesus, will set us free. All right. uh, We are going to talk next about another health concern. We have a number of COVID headlines to cover with Dr. Zach Jenkins from Cedarville University. So that's up next. All right, it is good to have him back again, Dr. Zach Jenkins from Cedarville University. Welcome back, Zach. Good morning. I keep hoping that there's going to be reason to not call you, and yet uh, we keep... (laughs) Me too. (laughs) We keep discovering reasons to call you. So let's do a number of headlines related to COVID. Um, The vaccine is now uh, being... um, at least by some, encouraged for children under the age of 12. Still a lot of debate among a lot of people about whether or not anybody is is interested in having their children vaccinated um, because there's still so much that people feel is not known about the long-term effects uh, of the vaccine. So let's wander around in this. Um, What's your take on the vaccine for children under the age of 12? Yeah, so so there's a, a few things we have to really kind of think about. One of which is, you know, what's the risk versus benefit to the child? And and as a parent of a five year old, uh, this is certainly something that's in the back of my head. So Pfizer had their statement recently. They came out with where they were basically talking about uh, how their vaccine is quote both safe and effective. Um, but you have to ask, okay, well, how are you saying that? We haven't seen their raw data yet. They have to turn that into the FDA. That's going to take time to analyze. So we probably may not hear, hear back on that really until the end of October. Um, even so, what, what they did with their study, because mortality is so rare in kids, they couldn't 
target that as like an outcome to say, are we going to see a reduction in severe disease? So they said, well, let's compare them to adults. And, you know, if their antibodies are within the same kind of window that we're looking for with adults, then we're going to use that as a surrogate for saying that they're clearly immunized and it's effective. Well, that doesn't tell us a lot, though, about what does that mean for their outcomes after they've had this. So that kind of remains to be seen. And we know for sure that uh, children under the age of 18 do have a higher incidence of heart inflammation or, or myocarditis. So that's something we have seen. Now, the incidence rates are low. Something like one in 7,000 has been what some have reported. Uh, I think the formal CDC data is like one in 14,000 right now. So that's where you have to start to ask, well, does COVID cause more myocarditis, which we know it does, than the vaccine itself? And with the kids under the age of 11, they're using like a third of the regular dose. And so I don't know what that's going to translate to in that population. So that's, that's a good question we're going to have to pay attention to moving forward. All right. Let's talk about vaccine efficacy over time. Um, what, what, what are we learning about that? So in general, vaccines are losing some of their immunogenicity over time. So effectively, we're seeing antibodies wane. We're seeing this with natural infection as well. Um, there is still a T cell response. That's another part of your immune system. And, and so with that, with that said, you're seeing this protective effect against more severe disease, moderate to severe disease. So even though we're several months out, we still have effectiveness of preventing hospitalization and severe disease. We are starting to see a little bit of a gap between Pfizer and Moderna, though. Moderna seems like it's pulling ahead a little bit. And that may simply be an artifact of, of the fact that they are spaced out differently with their dosing. So Pfizer is about a three-week uh, window between both doses. Moderna has four weeks. And, and so the thought there is that your immune system, as you've had the first dose, um, may still be a little bit reactive and kind of fighting off, we'll say, some of the efforts of the second dose of the vaccine. So there's this whole thing with boosters that the further you space them out, sometimes that means a better effect in the long run. So that's another question we're going to have to ask moving forward. Okay, there was a there was a word in there that was had lots of syllables and was really fun, and so I want to learn it. It started with immuno. Uh, I asked yeah, about so, the efficacy of vaccines, and you used a big fancy word that that vaccines are losing their immuno something. What was that word? Right. So so. Um, immunogenicity basically uh, is Emit, sort of the wait, wait, immune... slow down. Immu teach me how to say it. <laughs> immunogenicity. Yeah, so it's immunogenicity. Uh, the immune triggering I... response is a good way to think about it. Like um, so all right, I love you're that. losing Immuno... some of that over time. <laughs> immunogenicity. We're learning things today with Professor Jenkins from Cedarville University. We have to take a very brief break. When we come back, we're going to ask him about booster shots. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. All right, we're continuing our conversation with Dr. Zach Jenkins from Cedarville University. We are talking about a number of COVID headlines. Uh, Zach, we are hearing um, lots of conversations about boosters. So where are we in that conversation at this point in time? So booster, boosters are really interesting. Um, there's been a bit of a debate internally within our uh, three-letter organizations at the top as well as with the White House. The FDA actually uh, came out with their formal recommendation and authorization to uh, use boosters in older patients and, and in those at risk. 
Um, so people that have a lot of uh, significant comorbidities, uh, like maybe they're receiving active cancer, that uh, active chemotherapy, that sort of thing, they may qualify. Um, well, originally the White House and the CDC wanted to push boosters for all, but I'll tell you, I've I've seen the data. The data is not there. It is for that those at risk individuals, though. And so it's caused a bit of consternation between some of these three-letter organizations at the top. Uh, actually, at one point, the FDA had a couple of representatives resign because there was so much pressure to push boosters out in mass. Um, but for at-risk people, it makes a lot of sense. Um, I'm noting that this is all uh, a little bit like um, stepping into a river at a given point in time. And so this is this is a moving – this conversation moves forward. And so every time we talk with uh, – with Dr. Zach, just remember, we are stepping into a moving river at a point in time. And so um, at this point in time, this is where we are in these conversations. And I just, every once in a while, I feel like I need to say that out loud so that um, when somebody pulls this podcast up 10 years from now, they don't uh, they don't uh-huh. say, hey, you guys, that's not what you said then. Well, we're, what we're saying to you today is um, is what we know today. And we recognize that what we know today is different than and certainly more than what we knew when we started the conversation about COVID a very long time ago now. Okay, so that let's talk about true. monoclonal antibody treatments. Let's talk about what they are and access to them. So there have been a few monoclonal antibody treatments that have been developed since COVID started. And the, the whole principle behind them is they're an artificial antibody. So it's designed to, to mimic uh, natural antibodies that you would be producing in response to some kind of antigen. So what what you're doing in this case, you're, you're manufacturing these things and then you're giving these as an infusion to individuals to basically treat disease. Now, in the setting of COVID, the one that's gotten the most press um, is the one that Regeneron developed. And that's what President Trump received. That's also what Dr. Ben Carson received. Um, and, and they had great effect. And I think President Trump at one point called it a miracle drug. And it certainly works. I will tell you, in my patients, I'm seeing the exact same thing. We are using it in mild to moderate cases to keep people from getting in the hospital. The problem we're running into is we have a shortage. And, you know, just for example, two weekends ago, we ran out of it at my hospital. Um, it's, it's, it's hard to come by. It's a hard thing to manufacture. It's quite, ma- it's quite expensive as well. And you have some parts of the country with less cases and less, less use where it's been sitting on a shelf. And it takes time to kind of redistribute that in the system. Hmm. Okay. So am I thinking here of like an IV bag or something that's put into a, an IV bag? And then when you, because when you say infused, is that what that means? That is correct. Okay. So that seems like that's something that has to take place in a, uh, in a healthcare facility. This is not an, this is not something that is ultimately going to be something, you know, people are going to be able to go and get over the counter and do at home. That's correct. So they either have to go to an infusion center or uh, maybe in a nursing facility or in a hospital. Okay. So that's part of the access conversation as well, because there's just only so many places. And even in those places, so much availability um, to access. So I just think that there's layers of conversation related to um, to access in terms of monoclonal antibody treatments. And I just want people to recognize that, right? There's a distribution issue at several levels. Yeah, and and I'll mention, this is something worth considering too. So even though there's a little bit of controversy over um, what we're doing with monoclonal antibody distribution now under President Biden's plan, 
I will just personally tell you from experience before that plan even existed, we were having shortage issues and not just with that drug, but with other COVID therapeutics as well. All right. Let's talk about um, when you say COVID therapeutics, you're talking about things that people would um, have access to or um, or access after they have been diagnosed. Can we also talk a little bit about um, things that people might do um as preventatives, I mean, are are there things, I mean, like vitamin D, like, right, yeah. I hear a lot about vitamin D, I hear a lot about zinc. Are there things that you would say, all right, here are the things that we feel like we now know at this point in the moving river that we didn't know early on, <laughs> and we're now suggesting that, you know, people do as a way of preventing getting COVID? So as, as far as things someone could take, um, the data supporting zinc and vitamin C is just not necessarily there. There have been some small-scale trials that have come out. Uh, none of them have been very well designed, and they've had a lot of bias introduced in them. So they, they're not really good things to stand on. But they're not going to hurt if you take vitamin C or zinc, right? So if that's something someone would like to do, I, I don't see too much of an issue. Vitamin D is a little bit more interesting, though. So there's been a little bit of a back and forth on that one, and it does seem like with vitamin D, it may be somewhat preventative at ha- – at, uh, people progressing to more severe forms of COVID. The problem is we don't know what the dose is with that because all these trials that have been out there, it's like been low doses, high doses. So we don't know what the right dose is. Uh, Typically, maybe uh, 400 to 1,000 units every day is probably okay. That's what we would normally say. So I would say just don't do anything that's out of the ordinary with that, but it could certainly help based on what I've seen. Okay, and then um, it, I know it's a huge conversation, but let's have a short conversation about ivermectin <laughs> um, in in doses that are at the right size for people. So I don't want to talk about people taking drugs that are designed for animals. I want to talk about the kind of inter, in ivermectin that is actually designed for people. Yeah. So, so with with uh, the doses designed for people, um, it's important to understand that the the trials people have had, these studies that people have, have been conducting, and the things that have come from labs, are actually using doses that are many orders of magnitude higher than what we've had human experience with. So, the problem that translates to is you now have prescribers out there prescribing at those doses, and we don't even know what the right dose is if if it works at all, because the doses have been all over the board. Um, so that that's a big problem that we've run into in healthcare. I will tell you personally, you know, we had a case 20 minutes away from where I work. There was a patient who was not happy that the hospital wouldn't order it for their their uh, loved one in the hospital. So they went to this outside physician who's not affiliated with the institution at all, got a prescription, went back and sued the hospital to make them use this. A local judge ordered them to do so. And then it went to the Court of Appeals and it got reversed. But the patient at that point had already seen it. You know, it brings up questions like liability. Who's liable in a case like that? I mean, the hospital had their hand forced. Um, and we know that there are toxic effects when you have high doses of it. So it could be anything from nausea, vomiting, even as serious as coma. So it's not a completely safe thing. We do use it for treating uh, helminth infections, so parasites. And it does work well there. So there are clinical trials going on right now. There's about four left. I think one of them just came out and it didn't show positive results. But there are four others that are still ongoing, so I'm kind of waiting to see what what those say. I will. I will okay. say personally, um, I, I don't think there's going to be a lot there, but we'll see. 
Well, and so one of the things, though, that even just the conversation that you just raised about this one particular story, there are things that people are demanding of healthcare providers and healthcare in- institutions where we are saying you have to do these things because I feel like I know better than you in this case and in this circumstance. And you and you are not. Your conscience is now bound to my conscience. And for Christians, I, this is dangerous territory because there is an issue out there, issues out there related to life, particularly when we're talking about abortion and when we're talking about um, the taking of a human life at the end of a human life, uh, physician-assisted suicide, Whereas Christians, we have said you cannot bind the conscience of a healthcare provider. I, you cannot make a doctor or a nurse participate in something that that they have a sincerely held religious belief, you know, about the value of a human life, and so they are not going to terminate a human life, or they're not going to participate in a transgender uh, gender reassignment surgery. They're not going to do that because their conscience, you know, is is bound. Christians are now saying, I demand you give me this particular cocktail of drugs and you have to do it. And if you don't, I'm going to sue you in court. We are actually now participating. Many people mm-hmm. are now participating in an effort to get doctors and healthcare institutions to do things contrary to their their conscience. And I just want people to be aware of exactly what's happening when we do that. We are we are tearing down another barrier in another environment. Um, and that is one that we want. We want uh, we want physicians and healthcare providers and nurses to be able to uh, freely exercise their conscience in terms of um, doing certain things in particular situations in a healthcare environment where the patient or the patient's family is demanding something. Mm-hmm. I just want you to just imagine if you're listening right now, there is a patient's family demanding gender reassignment surgery for a child. And there is a doctor who says, my, I cannot do that. I will not do that. Do you want a judge to order them to do it because the family demands it? And, of course, you're saying to yourself, well, no, because that's not reasonable. And I, what I, want you, I want you to hear me say there are people who think that some of the things being demanded by families in relationship to the treatment of COVID aren't reasonable. That's what's going on at the, um, at the conversation level um, on these issues. Well, and, you know, the other thing to add, I, th- I think there's an assumption sometimes by people that, you know, these alternative strategies and and whatnot are not being looked at and the data is not being reviewed. I, I will tell you personally, it is. I sit, sit on the committee that makes decisions for my system. Um, but we've looked at the ivermectin data and we've seen how sketchy it is. And it's just at this point, not trustworthy for us. Now, other people have different conclusions, but I, I would just encourage, you know, Christians to be careful of assuming people have sort of malicious intent with some of this, because that's not necessarily true. Yeah. Hey, man, we thank you. We're praying for you. Um, And again, we're stepping in the river right today. Right. This conversation is going to move forward and we're going to revisit it, um, you know, as there's more data on all of these things. But, Zach, thank you so much for stepping in the river at this point in time with us on these headlines. Um, I'm sure we'll be back. I'm sure I'm sure you'll be back. I'm hoping you'll be back. (laughs) Thank you. We really appreciate it. That's Dr. Zach Jenkins at Cedarville University. We'll be right back. God is in control. Do you believe that? Join Faith Radio for a week of reading the Bible together through the first six chapters of Daniel, starting September 27th. When you sign up, you'll get a free devotional Bible study written by Daniel expert, University of Northwestern Biblical Studies professor Anna Rask. Go deeper by subscribing to the week-long daily podcast. Plus, you could win a copy of Alistair Begg's book, 
Brave by Faith when you sign up to join us at MyFaithRadio.com. The outside is happy, smiling, full of life. So it's hard to believe that the inside could be dark, empty, and often hopeless. You can't see inside of someone else. You have to be invited there. Faith Radio is here to help you find life-changing, even life-saving hope in Jesus Christ. And it's not just for you. As you build relationships and are invited inside the struggles of the ones you love, you can take that hope with you and help fill the darkness and hopelessness with light. Connecting faith to life. Faith Radio. All right, what kind of social media user are you? Yep, we are going to talk about that next with Chris Martin. We'll be right back. When you sin, do you find yourself worrying that God is disappointed in you, ready to give up on you? On the next Susie Larson Live, author and pastor Dane Ortland joins me to offer hope from his book, Gentle and Lonely, the heart of Christ for sinners and sufferers. We'll talk about how God really views us and the affections that he has, even as we falter and fail. Hear more on the next Susie Larson Live. Tune in weekdays at 3 for Susie Larson Live on Faith Radio. Hi, this is Bill Arnold. What do you say to a generous person? Well, for starters, when I grow up, I want to be just like you. You're such an incredible blessing to me and to all at Faith Radio. Your generous acts of kindness is transforming the kingdom of God by reaching more homes, more cars, more smartphones with the good news of Jesus Christ. Can I say how amazed I am with you? Okay, I will. I'm amazed by you. Thank you for leading the way, sharing your gifts and resources and encouraging me daily. When things go wrong at your house, are you afraid to talk about it with others? Afraid it'll make you look like a bad parent? Hi, I'm Mark Gregston with Parenting Today's Teens. Proverbs 11, verse 14 says this, For lack of guidance, a nation falls, but many advisors make victory sure. This is wise counsel for parents, because struggling silently with your teen can mean disaster in the family. Sit down with someone you trust, or collect a group of parents who are facing the same issues with their kids. Talk about the struggle you face and listen to advice. In the process, you'll likely have your eyes open to a few blind spots. Without the guidance of trustworthy friends, your family might silently implode. Take Proverbs 11 to heart and seek wise advisors. Mark Gregston has more helpful resources for you at parentingtodaysteens.org. Chris Martin is back. We'd love to talk with Chris about what's the latest he's got on his Terms of Service newsletter on Substack. He's a content marketing editor at Moody Publishers. Chris, welcome back. Thanks, Carmen. Thanks for having me. It's good to be back. Absolutely. All right. So what kind of social media user are you? This is a great question. I like uh, I like the way you help us think in categories from time to time. So the categories consume curate, create. I like that there is alliteration there and that they all start with C's and that you didn't even force that. So talk with us about the ways in which we can, well, participate in, maybe is the right way, uh, the ways we participate in social media and what kind of users we are. Sure. Um, You know, I I think and write a lot about social media and um, I think the, it's, it's tempting sometimes, especially in conversations I have with people 
to think that any conversations about social media have to be, well, if you think it's bad, you should just not use it at all. You know, sort of like Luddite, uh, destroy and, and avoid any technology if you think it if you think it's negative. And obviously, like I'm really critical of social media and what I write. We've talked about that a lot. And and I think it's really important that we see the problems that come about when we're when we use social media uh, without thinking about it, I guess you could say. Um, I'm not in anything I say or write. I never really advocate for uh, just log off and delete your accounts. Now, for some people, that's probably appropriate. Um, if you have a really unhealthy relationship with it and it's really infecting your other relationships or, or ability to be disciplined in some way. But I think more importantly for me is not that we all log off and delete our accounts What's most important for me is that we use social media responsibly um, and that we use it intentionally and that we always think about why we're using social media the way we do and how we're actually using it. So that was kind of the impetus for this post that we're talking about. I think it's helpful to think when you're using a particular social media platform and how you categorize yourself in the ways that we're describing may vary platform to platform. On one, on, on Instagram, you may be a creator and on Facebook, you may be just a consumer. Um, and so let me explain just really quickly what those categories are. So, uh, so listeners understand what we're talking about. I really think you use the internet and various aspects of the internet in three different ways. You're either a consumer, you're a curator, or you're a creator. And the line between these three is, the lines are pretty blurry. I mean, and like I said, on, on one platform, you may just consume, you may just read, watch videos, whatever, and you don't really consume anything. But then on some, you may, um, you may create, you, you may, uh, you may create a video on YouTube, or you may be an Instagram influencer, or, you know, do something there. So I think the, um, it may vary platform to platform. But a consumer is someone who is could also be called a, a lurker, um, as they're sometimes called. You you you're on Facebook, but you never post anything, or you're on Twitter and you 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 know you maybe consume news from your favorite sports team or uh, your favorite uh, author. You you see what they're writing, but you never post anything. A consumer is someone who hangs out on social media platforms but never posts anything. A curator um, is kind of a middle ground between a a creator and a consumer. So a curator is someone who reads a lot or watches a lot of videos and doesn't really create a lot of blog posts or videos themselves, but they're kind of like a recommender. They're like a, in, in like the business world, they'd be like a really good networker, if you will. Someone who, um, you know, maybe they have a Facebook page and they, and they post articles that they read that they find interesting uh, and share with their friends, but they don't really like they don't write anything themselves. They're not they're not coming up with ideas. They're just like, hey, check out this cool thing I read here or this cool thing I watched here. Um, that's kind of what a curator is. So it's someone who connects their friends or their followers to other content on the Internet that they haven't created. And then a third category would be a creator. And most of us know what creators are because they're kind of the heart of the social internet. They're, uh, a creator is that uh, nutritionist influencer you follow on Instagram and get all kinds of healthy recipes from. Uh, a creator is the, you, the vlog family that you follow their family, almost like it's a reality TV show on YouTube. A uh, creator is uh, that influential journalist on Twitter that 
you know, that uh, is a really, you know, an, an opinion column, columnist that you really like to read that, what they're what they're writing. That's what a creator is. And so I think it's helpful for us. Like self-awareness is just so important, obviously, in all areas of life, but especially as we examine our relationship with social media and the social Internet more broadly, it's important for us to recognize, hey, am I just consuming? Am I a curator? Am I creating? And it's important to recognize that because that helps us recognize how we may be prone to use social media in unhealthy ways. Um, and e each of these kinds of users, if you will, um, has you know pitfalls or st strengths and weaknesses when it comes to their relationship with the social internet. And so I think it's important for us to identify these different ways of using. And um, and I think the more we can understand ourselves and how we relate to people online, the less likely we are to use it in um, sinful or just or or negative ways generally. Okay, so we have a great question, a slightly off topic, but related. Um, Scott is asking if a church wants to engage with social media, which platforms should they use? Um, there are so many. Uh, and do different platforms? platforms have different demographics and where do we start? So that is a huge, <laughs> so many layers there. We could have a whole conference about that, but maybe just, um, uh, you know, say what you would say today, Chris, to Scott in terms of getting started. Yeah. Un uh, fortunately, un and unfortunately, my answer to that question is very simple. The, the shortest answer is Facebook is the primary platform you should probably be on because it's the most popular social media platform in the world. Um, so that's probably where most of your people are, you know, 20% of your people might have a Twitter account, 40% of your people might have an Instagram account, probably 80 to 90% of your people have a Facebook account. So Facebook is probably the best bet in terms of uh, where you're going to be able to reach the most people, uh, but it should not be trusted as your primary way of connecting with people just because the Instagram algorithm makes it so hard for content to be seen, especially when posted by pages like a church page rather than a personal, like a, like a, you know, like a pastor posting from his personal account. So, um, if I were starting, you know, from scratch, I would probably create a Facebook page, but yeah, different social media platforms definitely have different demographics for sure. You know, if you were pastoring a church that was primarily 20 somethings, I would say, maybe I would say Instagram should be the first thing you create rather than Facebook. But if it's kind of a standard church where you have people of all ages, um, Facebook is probably your best bet. Okay, um, I think that's a good segue into a conversation about, you know, what if I want to be the very top Christian Facebook page out there? Then I don't want to be a troll farm. See, there you go. I tried to segue into the conversation about what we're going to talk about next, and I don't even quite know what a troll farm is. So we're going to talk with Chris Martin next about top Christian Facebook pages that are actually troll farms, apparently 19 of the top 20 of them. All right, that's not good news. We'll be right back. All right, we're talking with Chris Martin. He is the content marketing editor at Moody, Moody Publishers. He's also the author of the Terms of Service newsletter, where you can get you know Chris's original content like that, which we just discussed, what kind of social media user are you, and then... Some interesting articles that include comments or commentary um, by Chris as well. And so that's what we're talking about now. What Chris uh, has read and then is passing along to us is is an article ab about troll farms on Facebook. Um, 
some of which you might be reading. So, Chris, what's going on here? Yeah, so the MIT Technology Review, um, which is obviously out of MIT, the college, university, um, ran an article this past week, uh, almost 10 days ago now, called uh, Troll Farms Reached 140 Millions, 140 Million Americans a Month on Facebook leading up to the 2020 election. And that data is from an internal Facebook report. So that that data is not, you know, somehow biased or like anti-Facebook. That That's data that came from Facebook itself. Um, and so leading up to the 2020 election, obviously there was a lot of concern about Facebook conduct and, and how Facebook was going to monitor foreign activity, trying to um, trying to uh, inv- get in, into people's heads leading up to the 2020 election because Russia did it so effectively leading up to the 2016 election. And that, that came out during the Cambridge Analytica scandal and all kinds of stuff that we've talked about here before. Um, but uh, unfortunately, in 2020, we saw from this data from this data that that there was a lot of troll farm influence going on leading up to the 2020 election. Now, what is what are troll farms? What how does this even what does this even mean? What how does this even affect us? Okay, so the article says this will be a succinct definition, and then I'll flush it out a little bit. Troll farms are professionalized groups that work in a coordinated fashion to post provocative content, often propaganda, to social networks. So another way of thinking about troll farms is like a small group of people who work together to instigate conflict and or advance a sort of political or propaganda message, often from a foreign place. So often um, you, you have like for us in the United States, we've had Eastern Europeans or namely Russian groups um, creating Facebook pages that they uh, work really hard to make really popular in the hundreds or t- at least tens of millions of followers levels, um, some of the top Facebook pages in the world. And they create content that's really interesting and they spend money to get that content in our feeds. And then uh, kind of a- after baiting us into into liking these pages, engaging with this content by um, by posting content that's of interest to different groups of people, they then kind of flip a switch or, or in a sort of sneaky, sometimes subtle, sometimes not so subtle way, start changing the message of those pages to, to um, more um, shady things, I guess you could say, or, or things that are kind of propaganda or political. They start trying to if you want to say it this way, I mean, this is kind of a hyperbolic way of saying it. They start trying to sort of brainwash people. Like you might follow this page that appears to be a Christian page, which is the point of this article that's interesting for us. Um, 19 of the top 20 Christian American Facebook pages uh, are troll farms, uh, which means Facebook has data and evidence to show that the Facebook page, Jesus is my Lord or positive quotes or light of the world uh, which I think each have in the tens of millions of followers on Facebook, they they aren't a Christian or b run by Americans, even though they're reaching Americans and in English. Uh, they're pages that are set up to bait American Christians with content that these trolls think they would like, and then engage them with content that is um, you know undermining America, like uh, undermining patriotic thought, undermining the truth, sowing discord. Like that's what happened a lot leading up to the 2016 election is these pages would intentionally post content to make people mad 
so that they would just get riled up and engage with it and then, you know, get angry with each other and then go vote in a particular way or go act in a particular way. And so this is really like some of this stuff is can be Russian state state sponsored um, from the IRA, which is the Internet Research Agency out of Russia. And so I, I think this is concerning to me, I mean, and it should be concerning to us uh, because this goes back to what I said in the first segment a few minutes ago. A lot of us engage on social media and we just don't even think about it. We just don't even think about what's going on. We don't think about the fact that, wow, this Christian, this, this be happy, enjoy life Christian Facebook page I liked eight months ago is now posting random stuff about you know, how a particular politician is actually a lizard person or, you know, just something outlandish. We just don't start think we don't think about that. Um, we, we just kind of our brains go on such a dramatic form of autopilot. A lot of times when we're scrolling social media, often while watching Netflix or while watching football or watching some other screen. And we don't think about we don't think critically about what we're seeing. We just kind of, well, if I like this page, I must trust it. So I need to, So I should take this as fact. Um, and I think this this sort of revelation, uh, this these same sort of troll farms also targeted Native Americans and African Americans, um, and so these these trolls say, hey, this particular people group have a certain set of interests. You know, for Christians, they're going to post encouraging content, Bible verses, quotes from famous Christians, or whatever, and then they're going to just start sort of almost like you know a little leaven in the lump, uh, start injecting some negativity, some conflict, something that gets people upset based on those interests that they've kind of been, uh, you know, engaging for such a long time. So I hope that makes sense. And the takeaway from this for me, and I hope for listeners is pay attention to the pages you follow, pay attention to the content that comes in your feed. Don't just assume that because a Facebook page looks like it's run by Christians, that it actually is. Because unfortunately, there are a lot of people who who know that Christians are are trusting people and that they trust other Christians. And so they'll kind of play act and put a virtual mask on and act like Christians to try to get you to engage with them. So just, just be wise as serpents, I guess, as, as we say, as Scripture says, be, um, be wise as serpents while being innocent as, as doves. Is there a way to find out, like on Facebook, if you're, you know, if you're looking at a page, is there a way to figure out, like, who's behind it? Uh, no, they're trying to be mm-hmm. better about that, um, especially if that page is like running ads uh, following the 2016 election. They're trying to be a lot more transparent. But if the page isn't running ads or spending money in any way, um, there's nothing to require them to reveal at all who they are. Hmm. All right. Well, that was Jennifer's question. How do we figure out if they're legit or not? Um, I think the, uh, the short answer there was discernment. I mean, if somebody is posting yeah. something about yeah. lizard people, uh, you know, it doesn't it doesn't matter how uh, how many Bible verses they posted before that or how pretty their um, uh, their graphics are. Uh, yeah. Let, let yeah. me give a piece of advice on that. It, I sure. would say follow follow Facebook pages, any social media accounts of Christian organizations, you know, and you trust um, like don't you'll see. I see these all the time. You'll see a page pop into your feed because your friend shared it from uh, a Facebook. I'm looking at a literal list of these Christian Facebook pages uh, from uh, life is beautiful. You know, a Christian feeling Facebook page that posts positive quotes, Bible verses. And, and you'll see that quote, just don't, don't like it. Don't follow the page, 
follow Christian organizations that you know are Christian organizations that you trust, whether that's like I'm familiar with Desiring God or uh, Rick Warren's ministry or other pastors or ministries that um, are trustworthy, that you you actually know who those people are, follow them and engage with their content, not just these random pages that you don't even really know who they are and they just post pretty pictures with Bible verses and, and you've never heard of who runs them. Um, so that's right. what Susie, I would say. Like, like, Susie Larson posts pretty pictures with Bible verses and yeah. we know her personally and we, you know, acknowledge uh, her ministry. Faith Radio posts pretty pictures with Bible verses. Right. Moody posts pretty pictures with Bible verses. If yep. what you're looking for are pretty pictures with Bible verses, you can get them from reputable sources and pass them along to that's others. Right. And all of us in all of those organizations um, have social media accounts, <laughs> including Facebook pages. So the only one right. uh, on the list of the top 20 that uh, is not a troll farm is guideposts. Again, something we would all recognize um, when we hear it yep. out loud. All right, so we got to leave it right there. Chris, as always, thank you so much. What helpful content. Um, blessings, 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 blessings. Appreciate it, man. Thanks. Have a great weekend. Yeah. You too. All right, you can find Chris at Terms of Service newsletter on Substack. We'll be right back. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.